Well, good morning, all. Happy belated Valentine's Day. I know there are people not here this morning because they're still in a sugar coma. Guys, all survived the snow? You must have. You wouldn't be here. That's a dumb question. That was amazing, wasn't it? You know, I feel really sorry for uh, Pastor Evan and Cindy because they're in Mexico and they missed all the snow. What a bummer, right, for them. I feel really, really, really sorry for them. Hey, um, Casey mentioned uh, labor of love. I just want to enlarge on that just for a moment. For those of you who don't know what that is, maybe you're relatively new to LifePoint, labor of love is what we call our... Uh, we, we originally, the very first food drive we ever did for backpacks for the homeless program here at Timberline was this time of year. It was at Valentine's Day, and so we called it Labor of Love, and that label has just stuck through the years, and that's kind of the term we use now for our food drives. And, you know, we do uh, a lot of things throughout the year in support of the backpacks for the homeless program. Uh, all of them are important. Some are more important than others. Uh, the essential mission of the Backpacks for the Homeless program is to provide food for homeless and low-income students uh, who may lack meals, for example, on the weekends. And so they can come uh, to an office here at the school and they can get a, a bag or a backpack full of food that's easy to use uh, to take to wherever it is they may be living at the moment. And uh, so it's pretty strategic. It's kind of our piece of helping these kids make it to graduation. And uh, the last few years, the numbers have been rising. I don't know if that's because of us, but the numbers are rising, and that's a good thing of uh, homeless students who are actually graduating from high school because it just gives them a whole new opportunity uh, in life. So our food drives are really, really important. We do these twice a year, and um, this weekend, it was going to be this past weekend, this weekend we're in right now is going to be yesterday and the day before, but because of the snow, we postponed it to next weekend. And I want you to sign up because uh, this is super, super strategic. And as Casey alluded to, we uh, seem most of the time now in these food drives to be filling not only the cabinets here at Timberline, but the cabinets at the other high schools as well. Uh, within the North Thurston School District. And so that's a great thing, but it only happens if we show up. And so I just want to ask you, I can't command you, can I? can't do that. I just want to ask you to sign up and, and be a part of that. It, it's, it's an amazing experience, honestly, to go and do that. And even if you're an introvert, um, the extroverts will cover you, but... But uh, the whole gist is to, you know, you, you know you know about people in front of grocery stores, right? I mean, we all, we all know about all that. But uh, basically, you're just saying, hey, we're, we're conducting a food drive for homeless students at Timberline High School. And their mouths come open a lot of times and say, there's homeless students at Timberline High School. Um, or, they, or they'll say, oh, I give to you every year. Thank you for being here. And we just hand them a flyer, and it's got a list of food items that are great for this application. And uh, a lot of times, you know, the guy that comes up with a grumpy look on his face and you swear he's not going to do anything will come out with a grocery cart. And this has happened over and over again, a grocery cart full of food. And uh, so it's a gratifying experience. It's a, it's fun to do together. And uh, so I command, I mean, ask you sign up and then, uh, Casey also mentioned the 90-Day Giving Challenge. This is just follow-up to our pirate series that we did in the month of January. And it's just a tool. It's just a device. Uh, I heard someone that was offended by this. I hope that you aren't offended by it because it's just a way of saying, hey, we want to encourage you to be faithful to the Lord in your giving. And it's a key discipline of, of Christian discipleship, quite apart, honestly, quite apart from the financial needs of the church. One of the things that each of us needs to get right in our walk with God and in our life of discipleship is the place of our treasure and, and how we steward that treasure. And so this is just a tool. You can read through it, um, and uh, it's a money-back guarantee. You increase your giving to amount that you choose for 90 days, 
And if at the end of those 90 days God has not been faithful to you, your life is a tragedy, things are falling apart, we will refund every penny that you've given over those 90 days. So a great uh, way for you to to, uh, take a step of faith and obedience. And then um, finally, and I don't mean to reiterate our announcements, but uh, a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was three, I've lost track. My brain is frozen from the snow. We announced to you that uh, the elders were looking at a piece of property uh, over in the vicinity of College Street and Yelm Highway. I want you to know that we have made an offer on that property, and we are in negotiations. We think we've arrived at what the sale price will be. Um, we haven't, it hasn't formally come to, to completion yet, that process, um, but uh, it looks like we're going to get this property uh, it's a beautiful piece of property. It's one that we had looked at uh, before. We thought that it had been sold. We thought it was gone. Um, but it came back on the market, and we're able to get it for an amazing, amazing price. And in fact, the price at which we will purchase this, if, if, if I'm trusting that it will, but if it goes through, uh, is actually uh, almost $30,000 less than the lowest assessed value in, in as long as it's been on the market. So uh, it, it's pretty exciting, and it's well within what you pledged to Vision Next. And so uh, we'll have more to say about that in a week or so. But we just want to ask you to pray, intensify your prayer uh, for that, um, because it looks like God is providing us a home. And so that's, that's very, very exciting. Well, we didn't come to do announcements. We came to get into God's Word. Let's pray together and ask God to teach us. Father, would you, by your, now, by your Spirit, speak to us from your Word, and uh, Lord, allow us to hear it and to understand it and then to uh, apply it appropriately in our lives. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Robin came up to me at the start of, or between services, and said that I'd gotten some scripture references wrong up there. And so, if the word Genesis shows up in place of Romans, brain freeze. Okay, I don't know. I don't know. But we're in this study in Romans. We've been in this now for uh, a while. We spent seven weeks in chapter one. We're going to spend about three weeks in chapter two in total. Um, but in uh, Romans one, does it say Genesis? Go to the next slide, Scott. No, it says Romans. It says Genesis on my sheet. That's why. In Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter, Paul describes um, those whom we labeled simply the godless. Okay? Um, the godless. Three, three groups of people in these first three chapters. So in Genesis 1.18 to the end of 1, we'll just call them the godless. In Genesis 2... Uh, he addressed those whom we might call the critical moralists. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And now in Genesis 2.11, actually through 3, chapter 20, although we're not going to go that far today, in 2.11 through 3.20, uh, did I say Genesis again? Three times. Romans, Romans, Romans. In Romans... <laughs> it's terrible. In Romans 2... 11 to 320. He's speaking to those who trust in their religion, in their religion, for their justification before God. That is their religious affiliation, their religious ritual, their religious practice. And so we're just going to use the term religionists. Paul is speaking to religionists. So this morning we are considering Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29 where Paul has something surprising, really, to to say to us today who are Gentiles, and something quite really provocative to say to observant Jews in any age. Will you stand and let's read it together. Romans chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, 
but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? that he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's word. You may be seated. I don't think I have Genesis in here anywhere else. But but you correct me if I do. Well, who's Paul talking about here in verse 11? He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Who's, who's he talking about? Well, those without the law are Gentiles, everyone who's not a Jew. Those under the law are the Jews. Which law are we talking about? We're talking about the law of Moses or the, the Mosaic law, the law that was handed down to Israel through Moses that's found in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Both groups, Paul says, will be judged, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, if you glance back at the previous verse, verse 11, and I hope you have a Bible open today, and I hope that you'll take advantage of our sermon notes form that's in your program. If you look back at verse 11, Paul stated there that both that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, will be judged, and God's judgment will be impartial. God is no respecter of persons, but God has not dealt with both Jew and Gentile in a similar fashion, has he? To the Jew, he has given in the law of Moses and the Old Testament scriptures, And all that that describes, a revelation of himself and of his will that was not given directly to the Gentile. We have it today because it's in our Bibles, but it wasn't given to the Gentiles. In chapter 9, Paul wrote regarding the nation of Israel, and we'll see this in a, a week, well, not just a week, we'll see this some months from now. To them, speaking of the Jews, belonged the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. To the Jews, God has given great 
advantages that God gave the law through Moses to Israel. And the Jews, Paul says, will be judged according to that law. But since God did not give the law, the Mosaic law, to the Gentiles, how can God hold us accountable and judge us on the basis of law? Well, Paul is going to demonstrate in verses 12 to 16 that the Gentile does have a law and that this law serves as a legitimate basis for divine judgment. How can this be? Notice the first part of verse 11 again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. By the way, you're going to have to think this morning. I hope you came with alert minds. If not, get another cup of coffee. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That word perish literally means to be judged, condemned. And the direct implication is that it is possible to sin without being in possession of the law, the law of Moses. Well, from that realization, it follows that the Gentile doesn't perish because he lacks what the Jews possess, that they're just ignorant and excluded. Instead, Paul is saying that the Gentile perishes, the Gentile is judged because he sins. It also follows that obedience to whatever law the Gentile does possess is still inadequate to save them from judgment. In other words, they have a law, but they can't keep it, and therefore they will be judged. Just same same truth regarding Israel. They have a law, they can't keep it, they will be judged. And at the same time, the same can be said of the Jew. Latter part of verse 11, all who have sinned under the law will be judged, will be judged by the law, law of Moses. And this doesn't imply that the Jews are protected from judgment. Quite the opposite, no Jew except one has ever succeeded in keeping the law. In verse 13, Paul takes it a next step, saying this, that doers, not mere hearers of the law, will be justified. In other words, justification is on the basis of keeping the law, doing what it says. Romans 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And what Paul says here sounds an awful lot like what James, his, the brother of Jesus, uh, wrote in the book that bears his name in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So there's a deception that's possible in being a hearer of the word. And you think, okay, I know it, I hear it, my mind understands it, my mind affirms it, and so I'm done. And both Paul and James touch a nerve because they're speaking to a very real dynamic in the Christian life, aren't they? They're reminding us of how easy it is for anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, young or old, to hear and to read and to study the Word of God, to understand it, even be able to teach it, but nevertheless walk away without it having any practical effect on the ways in which we live. Deceived, James says, because you think you're standing, because you know it. 
But it's the doers, not the hearers, who will be justified. By the way, this is the first occurrence in Romans uh, of this important expression, be declared righteous or be justified. And, And so he's speaking to final judgment. He's speaking about divine judgment at the last day. And Paul applies this principle, first of all, to the Gentiles. And he tells us that Gentiles will be judged according to what law? The law that's written on their hearts. For when Gentiles... Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Again, speaking to final judgment. What does Paul mean in verse 14 when he says they are a law to themselves? Well, let's begin with what it doesn't mean. First, Paul is probably not intending to suggest by that expression that they just blow off any law except what they invent for themselves in their own self-interest. Like the person, when you're playing board games, who keeps changing the rules. On the contrary, he goes on to say that they are governed by a law that is written on their hearts. A law that's written on their hearts. Now again, what it doesn't mean, if you're familiar with what God said that through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 33... I will write my law on their hearts. This is not that. Because in that passage, God is describing the terms of the new covenant that included the promise of the law being written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about regeneration. Actually, I think Paul is here in Romans is saying something far more basic, far more organic. He is insisting that the basic requirements of the law are stamped on every human Heart, not the detail of the law, but the essential requirements of the law. Eugene Peterson eloquently captured this principle in his paraphrase of verses 14 to 15 in the Message Bible. He puts it this way, when outsiders who have never heard of God's law, speaking of Gentiles there, who have never heard of God's law, follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien, imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. So we're talking about the kind of person that we that we alluded to a couple of weeks ago, the person who's the moral person. And you say, wow, that person is either a Christian or they should be because they're so moral. And, and we observe that there are, you know, we, we all know pagans in our own lives who are, seem to be far more moral people than we ourselves are, right? I mean, you know those people and you go, wow, that's a cool person. Not saved, but cool. C.S. Lewis began his argument in his book, The Case for Christianity, by pointing out that when quarrels develop between people, the thing to be determined is who is in the right and who is in the wrong. The parties may differ radically as to their respective positions on an issue. But they are very clear that there is, in fact, a right and a wrong. Similarly, despite the great differences in laws and customs among peoples around the world, what unites them in a common humanity is the recognition that some things are right and others are wrong. So Paul's saying that there are Gentiles who, quite apart from any knowledge of the law given to Israel through Moses, do by nature what the law requires. Moral and ethical mandates that are widely recognized and honored among humanity in general. We might call this, and some have called it, natural law, or more basically the law of conscience. It's, it's because this law is written on their hearts that Paul argues it is fair, it is right, it is just for God to judge them. 
It's not a perfect moral guide, but the very existence of this internal law of conscience is sufficient, Paul says, to make people, all people, accountable to God. So the function of conscience for the Gentile is parallel then to the function of the law for the Jew. Romans 2.15 says James up there. I don't know what I was thinking this, that day that I did this. Romans 2.15 says the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You hear what's going on? That inner dialogue like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. Now, yes, now, yes. Martin Luther said that the conscience is that evil beast that makes a man take a stand against himself. The work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. James alluded to this law when he wrote in chapter 4, verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Pretty foundational principle there, isn't it? So for both Jew and Gentile, it's not the hearers of the law, Paul says, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law, whether it's the law of Moses or the law of conscience, who will be justified. And God is the judge, and he'll sort that out. In verses 17 to 29, then, Paul turns his attention to the Jews. And here's what you need to understand by way of background to what Paul is about to say. The Jews believed that the possession of the law and the mark of circumcision guaranteed them immunity to judgment. Let me repeat that. The Jews believed that possession of the law and the mark of circumcision guaranteed them immunity to judgment. And they were wrong on both points. So at verse 17, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And in that passage, Paul uses eight verbs to describe aspects of Jewish kind of self-consciousness, self-confidence, self-righteousness, if you will. And Paul is a Jew, or was a Jew. Um, and, and a very highly trained and educated Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says he was. So he's speaking from the standpoint of a Jew looking at the world. And first of all, he says, you call yourself a Jew. And, and there's a, a pride in bearing the name of God's chosen people. It was a badge of honor. And, and it should have been. But he says, then you rely on the law given through Moses on Mount Sinai, trusting in your possession of it as a shield against judgment and disaster. That, that's really what he's saying here. You rely on the law. We would look at that and go, oh yeah, they rely on the law. They trust in it. They believe it. They act on it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're relying on the law for your standing, the fact of your possession of the law, for your standing before God. And you think that that's going to protect you from judgment. In fact, the rabbis taught that it did. He says, you boast in God. You, you brag about your special relationship with him. You're the chosen people. You have a monopoly on God's favor. He says, you know his will. Literally, it's, a literal translation would be, you know the will. The will of God. The will. The will to which all other wills are subordinate. You approve what is excellent. In other words, you're, you're, you're discerning people because you know what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. You, you're discerning. You're instructed from the law, he says. You, you know it. And, and every Jewish child is instructed from the law from, from infancy. And then he says, you are convinced that you are competent to teach others so that, listen to these phrases, you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. 
And, and those last four phrases would be a Jew's view of Gentiles. The Jews believed that possession of the law made them superior to the Gentiles. That's the way the Jews felt toward non-Jews. And we could paraphrase verses 17 to 20 this way. You, you come to the Gentiles and you propose yourself as a, a guide for their spiritual blindness. You come to the Gentiles as though they were foolish and dumb and childish, giving you the whip hand which you thoroughly relish. To you they are mere infants and they know next to nothing. They're ignorant. And by employing terms that were actually used by the Jews for the Gentiles, one after the other, maligning the Gentile, magnifying the Jew, Paul exposes Jewish religious pride and arrogance for its ridiculousness. Let me let you in on a little secret. It's actually no secret at all because you know it's true. We as Christians can feel and act the same way toward non-believers, can't we? Tim Keller suggests inserting Christian for Jew and paraphrasing verses 17 to 20, and here's how he suggests that might go. You call yourself a born-again Christian, and you're sure you are right with God because you signed a commitment card or walked down an aisle or prayed a prayer, and you really cried that night. You remember you had strong feelings for God, so you must have been converted that night. And hey, since then, you have memorized dozens of scripture verses, and you know the right answers to a vast array of biblical and theological questions, and you've led other people to make a commitment to Christ in the Bible study that you lead, and you really want to get deeper into the Bible. In fact, that's why you're here studying the book of Romans. We need to guard against those kinds of attitudes. At verse 21, the gloves finally really come off. And Paul levels a a devastating indictment at them for failing to practice what they preach. And he does that by way of a series of rhetorical questions that forces Jewish readers to really engage in some soul-searching and self-examination. Beginning at verse 21, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? I I just hate Paul for even saying that, right right there. (laughs) Do you teach yourself? There is a a sin of the clergy and and of others who teach that we, we study the Word of God only for the sake of communicating it to others and never internalize it, never examine it for ourselves and how it applies to us. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You preach a sermon on each one of these, couldn't you? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You go, what's that about? One of those little cultural artifacts there. You go, okay, let's move on because we don't know. Well, But we do know because in, in that day... It was a practice of, of some Jews, because of their hatred of the pagan shrines that were everywhere, they would go and they would raid those shrines. And, hey, check it out. Shrines are full of really expensive stuff. And gold and silver and, you know, stuff you can fence. <laughs> and they did that. So, their supposed religious fervor had this little materialistic theme going on, right, running right through it, right? And, and not to mention that in, in going into a pagan shrine, a Jew would, would uh, you know, desecrate them, desecrating the shrine, they, they made themselves ritually unclean. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that that last verse there, the name of God is blasphemed among you, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. Why did Paul choose that verse? Well, here it is. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord, for my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Well, 
what was going on there in Isaiah is Israel's disobedience had given God no choice but to discipline them, and he did that by allowing them to be conquered and led away into exile, and their captors ridiculed the God of Israel for his apparent inability to prevent, to protect them, to prevent them from being deported. But it was not God who was at fault, but his people who had refused to take the law seriously. It's a theme of judgment there. And at, at verse 25 then, Paul addresses the second major distinctive of the nation of Israel, which was the rite of circumcision, which was the mark of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. You can read about it in Genesis 17. We're not going to go there. But every male in every Jewish household was to be circumcised on the eighth day of his life. An uncircumcised Jewish male was a contradiction in terms. The problem that developed was that the Jews placed too much confidence in the ritual itself. And they had an almost superstitious confidence in the, in the saving power of circumcision. The rabbis began to teach that, that uh, men, Jewish men, circumcised men, cannot be condemned to hell. Uh, the rabbis taught that eventually that circumcision would del- deliver the entire nation of Israel from final judgment. And what they failed to recall is that circumcision was never a substitute for obedience, but always a commitment to it. Never a substitute for obedience, but rather a commitment to it. Have you ever wondered why circumcision? I mean, maybe only theological geeks like me ask that question. Why, why that tender little subject? You know, kind of painful. So when God gave Abraham an outward sign of the inward reality that he was after, of a personal, intimate relationship with with one's creator, why did he say, you shall be circumcised? What is the symbol of circumcision? Well, it it was this. It was a visual sign of the penalty for breaking the covenant. That's what circumcision was. In ancient times, you didn't didn't sign your name to bind a deal. You didn't get out a a quill and write on parchment, sign sign on the dotted line, right? You didn't do that. So a a man might... Well, what they would do is they, they would act out the curse that they would accept if they broke the covenant. So a man might uh, pick up some sand, for example, and hold it up and drop it over his head and say, if I break my promise, if I break this vow, if I break this covenant, may I become as the sand. Or, for example, he might cut an animal in half and, and walk between the pieces and say, if I disobey this promise I'm making today, this covenant I'm making, may I die as this animal did. An example of that is in Genesis 15, 19 through 21. And this is what God did when he sealed his covenant with Abraham. So there was a, a kind of a, a ritual drama that would take place. Circumcision is a cutting off in a very intimate, personal way. (laughs) So what God was saying to Abraham was, if you want to be in a relationship with me, you need to be circumcised as a sign that if you break covenant, you will be cut off completely. Cut off from others, in the house of Israel, cut off from me, cut off from life. You really will be ultimately circumcised. So Paul says at the beginning of verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if 
you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So on the chalkboard here, a couple of equations. Circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision. In other words, if you're circumcised and you're disobedient, you may as well be uncircumcised. That's the virtual effect. Next equation is this. Uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. But there's a little teeny problem. No one does keep the covenant. And Paul has already made that very clear. So you come to this point and you go, how can God have any people of his own at all? How is that possible? How can anyone be right with God because we're all screw-ups? Every one of us. In fact, James alluded to this when he said, you know, anyone who keeps the whole law and yet fails in one point will be guilty of the whole law. You go, come on, God! Nobody's perfect. He says, I am, and my son is, and that's the standard. So how can one be right with God? Here's the answer, and it's a very Jewish way of answering, so stay with me. This wasn't written in the 1960s. There's some cultural ladders we need to climb to to get to where Paul is going. So listen carefully. The cutting off of which circumcision was intended to be the sign has already happened. Paul wrote to the Colossian Gentile Christians, Christians in the city of Colossae, who, of course, had not been physically circumcised. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, he makes this amazing, surprising statement. In him also you were, past tense, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Wow. Now I'm really confused. What is he saying? He's he's telling them that they have, in fact, been circumcised in Christ on the cross. That in his death, Jesus was cut off. He was forsaken by the Father. He was cut off from him. He was cut off from the land of the living, Isaiah wrote. He was truly circumcised. And at the cross, the Bible teaches... The curse of our, cov- of our covenant breaking, he bore. He bore in his body the, the, the result, the, the, the consequence of our failure to keep either the law, the letter of the Mosaic law, or the law of conscience. He suffered the curse that lawbreakers, whether Jew or Gentile, religious or unreligious, deserved. And in him, all who look to him and trust him as Savior, Paul is saying, are circumcised. That is, they're included in the covenant, in God's covenant, included in God's people. So Paul's teaching about circumcision for the Jew is equally true of things like baptism for the Christian. And there are some of us who say, When I get to heaven, if I get the chance, (laughs) I'm going to have in my pocket my baptismal certificate. And I'm going to say, look, God, I was baptized. 
you have to let me in. Nope. What? Nope. Well, in my other pocket, I have my, my certificate of church membership. Nope. Well, let's see. I took communion every Sunday at Life Point. Nope. Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So if we apply that to baptism, we would say, or things like baptism, we would say that true baptism, like true circumcision, is in the heart. It's by the Spirit. And we can begin to rely on the symbols of our faith, the outward physical rituals, rather than the substance of our faith, the inward spiritual reality of a life transformed by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, it means nothing to be a a member of a church if you're not, in fact, a member of the family of God. It means nothing to take communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or whatever term your tradition prefers if you're not trusting in the work of Christ on the cross alone for the forgiveness of your sins. The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. And Paul would say that authentic Jewishness, like authentic Christianity, or you can reverse those terms if you haven't written them yet, you can say authentic Christianity, like authentic Jewishness, is inward and spiritual. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And and a Jew would say, what do you mean it's not outward and physical? I, I can show you. No. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. By the way, this is not only a New Testament concept. The Old Testament prophets said the same thing. Circumcise your heart and not your flesh. See, when the Spirit works in someone, he gives to them the Son's circumcision. He he goes, here's what Christ accomplished, and now I'm going to apply it to you. And neither our religious affiliation, nor our religious rituals, nor our religious performance, nor our lack of any of the above of the above matters. Through the Spirit of God applying to us the work of the Son of God, God the Father sees us. Notice in that last verse, verse 29, God the Father sees us as objects now of praise and not of condemnation. And by the way, the the word Jew is from the name Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. And the word, the name Judah means praise. His praise is not from man, but from God. We don't need to praise ourselves or live for the praise of others, although we want to, don't we, desperately. But our Father in heaven will praise us. The letter of the law. If you want to be, we said two weeks ago, if you, want to, if you want to be judged on the basis of the law, knock yourself out. But the letter of the law only leaves us facing the curse and never, does, never receiving any of its blessings. We need someone else to take our cut-offness because we can't keep either the law the law of Moses, the law of God, or the law of our own conscience. What we know is right and wrong. Only God can take that cut-offness for us and in the finished work of His Son at the cross and in the internal work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's done it. He's done it. And so by faith, and faith alone, we enter in. And by the way, if you find these first three chapters of, of 
And we haven't gotten through the third chapter, so you'll be thoroughly depressed by the time we get to the end of chapter 3. But if, if you find them depressing, here's what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, here's the, the bad, bad, bad news. And then he's going to say, and then he's going to come to a point, he's going to say, look, but now a righteousness has been revealed from heaven quite apart from the law. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in him. So we'll go deeper next week if it doesn't snow or rain torrentially or we have a heat wave. Yes, Jesus. Yes, a heat wave. We'll go into chapter 3 and further into what Paul wants us to understand about our predicament apart from God. Listen, this morning, there's a lot that all of us don't understand about God, about his will and his ways. But you don't have to understand everything God understands in order to trust in Christ. All you really need to understand is this, that you can't even keep your own conscience, let alone the letter of the law. And and, and God says, I'm going to judge you for that. Sorry. So in that moment, you say, I need somebody to save me from this. And Jesus is God's provision for that. What he did on the cross was full and final payment for all of your failure. All the failures of the past, all the failures of your future were born in his body at the cross. And that's what Paul wants us to understand in Romans, not Genesis, but Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. Come to faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it makes us scratch our heads so that we go bald at the back. And yet we also are brought to the end of ourselves and understand our need for a Savior, one who would do what we cannot do, one who could solve the problem of our failure to meet even the most basic principles of conscience. And we thank you that you provided that in your Son, Christ, and that when he said at the cross, it is finished, it really was that everything that was necessary for the, the complete forgiveness of all of our sin was done right there. And so, Lord, we look to the cross of Jesus and we put our faith in him because he is our only hope. I pray today for that one who may be standing at the one-yard line looking into the end zone saying, shall I take the step of faith? And I pray that today might be the day that you would grant them that gift of faith that leads to life. And I pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior.